This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 263. I have a wonderful professor, James Trevelyan, with me on disrupting air conditioning for a healthier planet. Now, we talk about all sorts of things in uh, terms of climate change and energy usage, and a lot of people don't realise just how impactful air conditioning is. And of course, it's a catch-22, isn't it? Because as the planet gets hotter, as the weather destabilizes and we end up with freak heat uh, in summers or even spring, we need to feel cooler to function. I don't know about you, but uh, getting through a super hot, humid day uh, in February is much harder for me here in Sydney if I haven't had a good night's sleep. And so, uh, Professor James Trevelyan has actually created a product that has completely disrupted air conditioning. And the idea came from time that he regularly spends in Pakistan, thanks to having a Pakistani partner, and uh, seeing just how uh, much productivity drop there was in people in Pakistan in the hotter months. Uh, with temperatures up into the uh, late 40s and even hitting 50 sometimes uh, because they weren't refreshed from sleep. So uh, what I love about what James says is that he's into cooling people, not buildings, not walls. Uh, and uh, it's a really, really interesting look at innovation and what is happening uh, at the coalface of an issue like air conditioning that absolutely needs to change because the more we use air conditioners, the more energy we're using and the more we are actually contributing to the destabilisation of weather systems on our planet and uh, the increase in heat. So something has to be done and uh, I think a lot of us uh, have become really comfortable with kind of same temperature all year round vibes. And actually part of building resilience in the body is fluctuations between hot and cool. But something that can't be argued is that a good night's sleep uh, helps us function overall and actually be more resilient in general. So the coolsy is the tool that he's invented to help us there. And we actually are going to have an offer for you guys from mid-December on this. So as you listen to the podcast, if you're thinking, oh my gosh, this sounds amazing. I would love one of these. We have an offer coming around the corner. It's very hard to get one of these right now because they're completely sold out. Uh, so we're waiting for the next shipment and I will have a special Christmas offer for you guys. This is perfect for people who want to cut down their energy costs, energy usage. It is much cheaper to run than your reverse cycle air conditioning systems uh, and uh, ducted air conditioning. And uh, you might just be able to cope with those hotter days if you've had a good night's sleep in a cool bed. So, uh, James, in terms of uh, his vibe, you know, I don't often have product founders on the podcast unless they are major disruptors or inventors of incredible technology. 
So rest assured, we definitely have a person like that on the show today. Uh, in 2007, James uh, first invented a prototype for what would become this Coolsy personal air conditioner. And over the next six years, he worked with his engineering students at the University of Western Australia, shout out to our Western WA listeners, uh, to gradually develop and realise his dream for energy efficient, localised air conditioning technology. And a bit about uh, Professor Trevelyan in the past, uh, he is an engineer who has won all sorts of crazy awards, very, very smart person uh, who has made a huge contribution to his profession. And it's very exciting to me to see that he's now brought that incredible mind uh, and the support of his research students uh, under his tutelage at university to create something like the Coolsy. So, I'm excited to jump into that. We also talk a little bit about James's history as an engineer and various inventions and that desire to solve problems uh, because I know that's interesting to everybody. So I don't want to talk too much about that now. Now it is at the very end of the month. So I want to have a huge thank you to Helen from Primal Alternative for sponsoring the show this month. It is so lovely to work with our sponsors. We always choose people who are really well aligned to low-tox principles, one of which is obviously eating unprocessed, uh, locally sourced and made food, and Primal Alternative absolutely delivers on that front, localising your baked goods to the person next door, if you will. And how that works is there's a whole uh, network of what we call primalistas, home bakers, who for a variety of reasons, whether it's that they want to spend more time with their kids, whether it is uh, about wanting to start your own business, but not wanting to do it all yourself and finding the licensing model appealing of receiving all the recipes and resources to help you get going. Uh, for whatever reason, a primalista becomes one. Uh, it's an incredible network around Australia and now the world. So please, if you're listening to this overseas and you're thinking, gosh, I'd love flexible hours and to do something like this from home, uh, then please get in touch with Helen because it is absolutely possible. I've seen there are a few in the UK and the US now, which is great. Um, but beyond uh, being helpful for your baked goods, these baked goods are grain-free. A lot of people find that transitioning to grain-free diets uh, provides uh, a landscape for our health to improve, healing to occur in the gut. Uh, and of course, for people who have allergies and intolerances, it is a dream come true to still be able to offer their kids um, some really beautiful whole food ingredient-based breads, pizza bases, wraps, granolas, cookies, etc. Uh, all in compostable packaging, uh, all even packed with uh, compostable cellophane, uh, a very um, a huge amount of attention to detail Helen's made in producing this uh, business and allowing people to then have their own businesses independently. You don't have to recruit people. It's not a networking model. It's a licensing model. Uh, so there's a lot of freedom there to decide how you want this to look. Now, Helen has a wonderful starter pack offer for people who are interested in 
in uh, becoming Prime Listers, uh, over $600 worth, which gets you a few baking tins, the apron, labels, everything to kind of get you going and a one-on-one session with her. But she's also put together an information pack to help you get to understand a little bit better about Primal Alternative and the opportunity. Uh, Maybe you don't want to have a phone call straight away and and that's a bit confronting, but you would love to learn more. So head to primalalternative.com forward slash info hyphen pack forward slash, and you'll get to know everything you need to know to see whether this might be something you'd like to do in your life. We're talking about the great resignation these days. uh, So this definitely falls in line with an option out there if you're considering a change of work. And uh, on top of all of that, she's offering $1,000 worth of digital bonuses, uh, including Helen's signature health coaching course uh, and a business blueprint. Uh, which is a values-based business planner um, helping you uh, step into success. So thank you, Helen, and thank you, Primal Alternative. Uh, Just in case you're a retail customer, know that you can just jump on the website or find a Primalista near you. And uh, my picks are my brownie mix. I'm a little bit biased there, but I have a collab with them um, where we have my beautiful brownie mix uh, that's a little bit like my mum's, but a little bit different as well. Of course, I can't stick to a recipe. Uh, And uh, that's a really good one. I love the hemp wraps. And I also really love the chocolate chip cookies as a, a bit of a treat for my son and I and my husband every now and then. We adore them. So enjoy and enjoy this fascinating look into an engineer and inventor's mind and how we are now disrupting the air conditioning market. Hello, James. How are you? Hello. I'm fine. Thanks, Alex. Great to be with you. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you here. Uh, Often we learn about new technologies. We hope things are happening. I've hoped air conditioning would change. We would find a way not to kill the planet while cooling ourselves and then you come along and you're doing it. So this is a very, very exciting day for us to be able to share this kind of technology with the audience. Uh, I think people will be hearing more in depth about uh, you as an engineer, uh, air conditioning as an industry, uh, and a lot of people really don't realise just how impactful uh uh, air conditioning is in unfortunately a very negative way or certainly has been up until this point so we're going to dive into all of that in a little minute but I always love figuring out why people end up what doing what they're doing you're a career engineer um, but what were some of the clues in your childhood that made it really obvious you'd go on to invent things if you look back and you think oh yeah okay I was always a bit like that <laughs> well you know uh, I, I went on holiday to Margaret River, which is, of course, a great place to enjoy fine wine these days. But this was long before anybody had thought of growing wine there. And uh, uh, I had this little book uh, about discovering the stars and how you could easily build a telescope. And uh, so I thought, gee, I'd really like to build a telescope, too. So it wasn't long before I'd taken over my mum's kitchen with horrible red stuff called rouge. Uh, which is basically iron oxide. It's the same stuff as you get in your underpants when you go to any iron ore mine. And it it just gets everywhere. But you use it to polish glass into mirrors, uh, you know, curved mirrors for telescopes and things like that. And uh, so I I really got into building telescopes and lots of other things. So, you know, I'd always known I was going to be an engineer. Yeah, I love it. But inventing things wasn't necessarily part of the story. It was just 
that came that came as something else. Mm-hmm. And you know, not all not all engineers invent things. No, that's true. Absolutely. So you've won what the equivalent of a Nobel Prize is in engineering, the Engelbert Science and Technology Award, and that was for a sheep shearing robot. That's so right. Yes. Can you talk me through why that was needed? Why you, how you came across a need for such a thing? Well, at first I was very skeptical. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you, mm. but uh, having met farmers who faced a one hundred percent rise in in shearers' wages in eighteen months in oh, nineteen seventy four, one hundred percent rise. They that was like you know they were paralyzed mm. and and i don't uh, imagine it, that there was a 100% rise in the price of wool for their product anywhere along the chain no, to cover that yeah no in the and so this this was at a time you know it, it, it's sort of in ancient history for so many people uh, the whitlam government was in they didn't really know how to manage the economy uh, wages were rising 20-30% every year. The shearers got away with a 100% rise in, in, in 18 months. Um, and it was when I learned how much farmers were prepared to pay for wheat harvesting machinery, you know, a quarter of a million dollars, and it sits in a shed for all but a few days a year. I thought, yeah, for that money we could build a robot. Uh, you know, this is serious business, and it was costing the country billions of dollars even so uh, I realized, yeah, there was every opportunity. And uh, then I got asked to review two machines, one by CSIRO in Geelong and one put together by some farmers in the southwest here, Western Australia. And they then commissioned probably the most expensive company in the world at that time to build their ideas. And they tried it out here in Western Australia. And I looked at these machines and they were so primitive in terms of their control systems. And having just come from an aviation background and understand how you control aircraft with computers, I thought, oh, this is this is straightforward. We can do this. And so we started and we put up a proposal to the War Corporation and they said, OK, look, how long do you think it'll take? And I said, oh, I think we'll put take you know, three or four years to get the first prototype working. They said, we're desperate. You know, how much would it cost if you were to do it in 18 months? And we said, well, we'd need a lot more money. And they said, here you are. Get started. Move now. And, and it was that push, you know, from the, from the customer that really got us started. And that, that's been something which I followed for the rest of my life. You know, where there is a desperate need, money is no object. Mm, you can so get true. things moving. Absolutely. So true. Uh, we look at that with medical technology development in the last year and a half as well, you know. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's a question of tapping into that need and understanding that need. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so how does one finish a project like that and decide what the next project is going to be when you're an engineer? Like do you, do you then just kind of have a few networking okay. catch-ups and or, or does something <laughs> pique your interest in an article and then you start researching? I'm curious to know because there's there must be a huge sense of completion when you come to the end of something like that. Well, it, I mean, I, I guess the end of the story isn't quite there because a lot of people, the first thing people would say is, well, I've never seen a robot in a shearing shed in Australia. You know, wasn't that a dreadful waste of money? Uh, and my answer would be, no, not at all. Uh, you know, I have met 
leaders of the Australian Workers Union just a few years back. And uh, we came across each other quite by chance. And they were absolutely thrilled to meet me because they said, we've always wondered who it was that managed to get a robot to shear sheep. You know, the Australian Workers Union represents shearers. Yeah. And But wouldn't uh, they have we, been ridiculously upset that such a thing came along? No, actually, they were very supportive. Mm, you know, okay. I mean, uh, shearing is backbreaking work. Mm. You know, shearing is the one industry that can flout all the occupational health and safety laws we have in Australia and get away with it. The maximum lifting limit, occupational lifting limit, is about 20 kilos. And yet shearers are routinely shearing sheep up to 140 kilos every day as we speak. And guess who picks up the tab? Who, who picks up the health cost? You and I. All right? Because shearers get injured, they get, they get permanent back problems, they get skin problems, and so on and so forth. The average working lifetime in the shearing industry, just a few, few years. You know, there are a few who can do it for a lifetime. But most only do it for one or two years before they realize, I can't carry on with this. It's ruining me. And this industry continues to work like that uh, because the laws are not enforced. But, but look, it's, that's, if you like, is another story. Uh, in essence, what these shearers told me is they said, look, we really respect this technology. And since we demonstrated that machine working, shearing a whole fleece off a sheep in one automated operation, they have never, ever asked for anything more than a cost of living rise. There's been no more outrageous wage claims. So, so, and ultimately that was the purpose of the exercise. The wool industry wanted something to bring sanity into the industrial relations arena around shearing. And uh, it, doing this research project was the way to do it. They felt their gut feeling was that there was no need to actually put robots into shearing shed. That would be another huge investment. And of course, the project reached that stage just as the wool industry was in dreadful state of collapse in the 1990s uh, when they, you know, the mismanagement of the, the fund that provided a guaranteed price of wool to growers, it was mismanaged uh, under the Hawke Labor government. And, and that resulted in a wool mountain of unsold wool, a huge mountain of unsold wool. And uh, so they were in a, in, not in a good position. But yeah, the, the object always was essentially to, to have a, a, a proper conversation between shearers and the wool industry and say, look, you know, we're all in this together. We can bring in this technology, uh, but if, if the government decided to act, as I guess they really should, but that pressure has to come across the whole we need robots to take to, to take the heavy load, the heavy lifting load off of people. Yeah, and I think um, you know, as we were talking about wage costs there for a little minute, it sort of makes you realise that the reason they were probably desperate for more money was because they wanted something that made it feel somehow worth it to do that work. Yes, I think there was an element of uh, you know exploiting what they saw as a very wealthy industry at that time and certainly the wool industry had been very wealthy and they felt that they weren't getting their fair share uh, but uh, you know there wasn't this real understanding of the magnitude of the workers compensation issue 
And, you know, what other industry can palm off its workers' compensation costs onto the wider community? You know, uh, and, and that, that's still the case today. It's like it's somehow shearing is seen as sacrosanct and, you know, we don't want to interfere. Uh, but it's definitely a social justice issue. And, and, you know, we should convert shearing into a knowledge-based occupation that anybody can do. Right? We take the physical, the hard physical labor out of it and, and use the skills and the knowledge that people have in the industry to get a better product out of the end. You know, and and one, of the, one of the big economic factors that actually made automated shearing attractive was eliminating what are called second cuts, was removing second cuts as an issue. So second cuts is where the wool gets cut twice. Now, the value in wool is in having a long fiber length of the order of 10 centimeters, 10 to 12 centimeters long. If you cut it into two pieces, it's worth a lot less. And, and human shearers just, you know, do this all the time. I mean, it, it, they're not, you know, it, there's a significant proportion of what are called second cuts. And that, that's, you know, wool that is much less value. It goes to make socks that fall apart in a couple of years and things like that. Um, if we reduce the volume of second cuts, it greatly increases the value of the wool clip. But what makes you move move on? Well, you know, um, actually, it was a graduate student who came along and said, I want to invent something. I want to invent a robot. You invented a sheep sharing robot. Tell me what kind of robot is desperately needed that I could invent. And I said, well, actually, I think there's a much harder question that would suit you as a PhD student. And that is why there's so few robots. You know, in the 1970s, people said there won't be any jobs in factories by the 1990s. And people are still saying that, you know, robots are going to take over factories. There won't be any jobs left anywhere for people to do because there'll be robots doing them. And it doesn't happen, does it? Well, yes, and the no, answer, I, think, I think the jobs morph and change into other types of jobs. Yeah, hmm. they do. Um, and but, you know, so my comment at the time was why are there so few robots because to me robots are actually really tediously difficult to build and get working especially robots that don't do simple things you know look look at the all the work that's going into uh you know robot cars essentially right self-driving cars uh it's much much more difficult than it seems and there's been a huge amount of money invested and it really is quite a bit more difficult than most people thought but, you know, there's real reasons for that. And one of the reasons is, is that robots are difficult to program. And it's difficult to get people to understand how to program robots. So this is the question I gave to my graduate student. And he said, that's much too hard. And went off. He went off to play with the first internet browser that was just appearing at the time and found a, a coffee pot online at Cambridge University. They had a... a, a you know, TV camera pointing at a coffee pot, and they put the image up on their web page. And it was, you can see the robot in our lab here in Perth, in Western Australia, and they could send it commands and get it to move. And that was the, the beginning. That was one of the first demonstrations, uh, which he went on to build with a, with a team of my students <laughs> that he oh, corralled. Wow. He even got me involved in the act. And in a few weeks, they had this robot working and it could be programmed online uh, by anybody in the world. And it was one of the first demonstrations of what today we call the Internet of Things. I'm sure you've heard that phrase. Uh, so the idea is how could you connect, 
you know, a device that was as complicated as a robot to the internet. And he was one of the people that, that helped solve that problem. And now that technology is used almost everywhere. Uh, so that was a real, real exciting ride, you know, to be right at the forefront of that. He actually came to me, he was bitterly disappointed a few weeks later when he found a robot at uh, the University of Southern California that was online before ours. Oh, no. And he said, that, <laughs> yeah, he said they've done it first. And I said, look, don't worry, it's only a toy. It'll break down after two or three weeks. And I was right, it did break down. So we had the first industrial robot online. And, you know, later he got a tremendous accolade. He was invited by the Carnegie Science Center in Pittsburgh to replicate our, on our robot that was on the Internet for their museum there right in front of the world's biggest robotics institute and they were absolutely purple with envy wow that, that uh it wasn't one of their robots that was on exhibition it was one of ours from australia on the mm. other side of the planet aussie 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 there you go yes. yeah. <laughs> um something else that i learned about when i was researching your work was your work in landmine clearance methods uh, that's, well, that came next. Yeah, I was going to say, where where does that fit in this picture? And it obviously well, sounds like you it's see, next. My wife, uh, as, as I said to you before, she's originally from Pakistan, and she was doing a lot of work. She, she's a specialist in international relations, and she was uh, doing volunteer work for the Red Cross and said, well, look, you know, Red Cross is having a lot of difficulty in many countries because of landmines, and surely you could invent a robot to remove the landmines. I said, oh, don't be silly. That's much too difficult. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, you sound so, like your PhD student. There you go. Sometimes it just well, takes someone asking you the right question. Well, you see, she wasn't, she wasn't, uh, wasn't to be put off easily. So she mm. organized uh, General John Sanderson, uh, who had, he, he had just become chief of the Australian Army after leading the Australian uh, UN mission uh, in, in Cambodia. Um, and uh, he, she got him to twist the other arm. So they pushed me <laughs> into, this, into this issue of landmines. And so the first thing I decided is no robot, robots here. But, you know, let's have a look at the problem, understand the need, understand what could be done. And that was, a, again, a really exciting ride because we did that work in Pakistan. Uh, we got Afghan deminers who were doing the actual landmine removal work in Afghanistan at the time. They came, they were based in Pakistan because Taliban were in, were in charge of, of uh, Afghanistan at the time. And they uh, took us to an area just across the road from our office in Pakistan. And they said, this is just like Afghanistan. We'll put, we'll put simulated mines in the ground here and we'll teach you how we do it. And then you can work out how to do it better. So we worked with the Afghans and so on. And, and the great thing was that we had people who could speak with them in their own language and understand the issues that they were facing. So we managed to make some, some relatively simple innovations, which, which were quite, you know, quite effective at improving things, particularly safety, uh, safety for deminers. We, we converted it you know, from an occupation which was really dangerous in terms of the injuries, deaths and injuries that were occurring into an occupation which was considerably safer than construction. Uh, so, and, uh, you know, that wasn't all us. It was also the Afghans who were involved themselves. Some really clever work done there. 
but it was a question of, of sitting down together, thinking things through and, and working out how it could be done. So, yeah, I mean, and that then brought me face to face with the issues in developing countries. I developed a taste for Pakistan mangoes. And, you know, if you haven't tasted Pakistan mangoes, you haven't tasted paradise, at least in my view, they are to die for. But the, the reason why they're so delicious is because they picked off the trees 10 days before you eat them and they're ripened in the summer heat which is typically between 40 and 45 degrees centigrade. And they're, they're put into little uh, you know, wooden crates and you keep them at that temperature. You know, they're carried around and transported. So 10 days later you eat them and they are just absolutely wonderful. They are exported. There are even some that coming now to Australia, but they don't quite reach the same level of perfection. So there I was, but of course the catch is that you're in a country where electricity can be intermittent. And so you sleep, I, there I was sleeping uh, or trying to sleep at two o'clock in the morning with no electricity, my air conditioner had thudded to a halt. Uh, it, total silence, total absolute pitch darkness. I could hear the mosquitoes lining up to it. You know. And uh, I said, there's gotta be a better way. <laughs> there's gotta be a way. Wow, so that cool, was your air conditioning moment. Yes. Huh. And I said, it has to run on a battery, you know, because every, every, pretty much every middle class household, you know, there are probably half the population live in houses with what are called UPS units, so uninterruptible power supplies. Uh, it keeps a few lights and a fan going through the power cuts. I said, it has to run on one of those. And it, if only I just had a breath of fresh air on my face, it would be enough. I could carry on sleeping. And that was how the idea was born. So you can see how it all links together. And, and when I first brought the, you know, at first it was just a technical curiosity. Could we do it? It took years. I thought it'd be really simple for my students, you know, because I was teaching mechanical engineering. Uh, and in the end, I, I said, oh, I'll have to do it myself. Uh, and although, the, you know, they helped, but they just, it was just beyond what they could do as students. And so eventually I got a prototype built. We took the prototype to Pakistan. It was made of wood. It had lots of pipes and wires and things like that. Uh, I set it up in this bedroom, which we normally sleep in, which is typically the temperature, you know, night and day is between 40 and 45 degrees. Just to give you some idea of the heat there, it's just different to what we have in Australia. Uh, and, you know, I showed it to local people. We have a tent over the bed because at that temperature, you have to really, you know, you have to concentrate the cooling coming from a, you know, a machine that's only running on a couple of hundred, two or three hundred watts. So the tent keeps the cool air like a swimming pool, like a, you know, because cool air is heavy. Uh, it'll flow off the sides of the bed if you don't have a tent around to, to hold it in place in really hot conditions. Uh, and when I showed it to local people, you know, because they were really curious as to what this gizmo was, <laughs> really curious. And I said, okay, you know, just try lying in that tent. Uh, um, and they got in, they said, this is unbelievable. And so they said, really, it's only 300 watts. And that translates into, I can afford to run this, right? You know, and they said, then they said, how much would it cost to buy one? Well, I had no idea. You know, it was just a contraption made of wooden pipes and things like that. I hadn't even thought about producing them. Uh, so because I couldn't answer that question, I turned it around and I said, well, how much would you pay for it? And they said, oh, you know, three, four hundred US dollars easily. And I thought, oh, 
that's an awful lot more than I thought people in Pakistan could afford. Oh, wow. Okay, that's interesting. An awful lot more. Yeah. And I thought we could make it for that. You know, it's a it's the possibility of a commercial proposition. And just probably two or three years before, I went to a, a really insightful talk by a guy that helps runs the Stanford D School, which is a design center at Stanford University. Mm -hmm. And he said, look, if you're going to have an invention which is going to really make life better, make sure it's going to benefit at least a million people. Yeah, uh, so that it's one. not a, a right. wealthy elite kind of privilege. Well, it's just like, you know, you've just got to have a big market, yeah. number one. He said, number mm -hmm. two is experience the need for yourself. Tick mm -hmm. the box. I had experienced the need. Yeah. You know, and yeah, I went through all his list of things that you need to satisfy. And I said, yeah, we can do this. It's mm -hmm. going to work. And that was the beginning of close comfort. And, you know, in your introduction, you mentioned that you're going to, you know, tell people about it and make it available. So the first thing I have to tell you is that we've got a rebranding, we're going to call it something different. Ooh, because when exciting. I say, when I say close comfort, you know, I have to tell you that one, one of the people on our advisory board, mm -hmm. she said, is that a new kind of condom? When she first heard about it. <laughs> It does. Look, I did think feminine hygiene product, maybe. I also thought pillow because, you know, yes. it's something that's very close to you and comforting. So here we oh, are. Oh, Coolsy. That's cool. It's now, yes, we're from now on, we are Coolsy.com. Mm -hmm. Love it. So the idea, this is this is what, what my team came up with. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's what we call a sticky name. Yes, so, I have to say that is an infinitely better name for thank you. a revolutionary product. I'm yeah. really excited about that. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, too funny. And, and you, you know, I guess that's the important thing because having got the technology right, mm -hmm. everything I've learned since has been about how to sell and, and marketing. You know, in Australia, we have a lot of people who will tell you that we're really good at inventing things and hopeless at commercializing them. And we have government programs that help you invent things. They help you through that, develop the technology. But unfortunately, we haven't yet realized that the real challenge is how to market new ideas. You know, again, I'm, I'm always learning about marketing. I'm, you know, I'm still at Marketing 101. But it seems to me that the marketing or the advertising industry has been seduced by this idea of brands. Everybody talks about brands. You know, and brand, when you've got... You know, let, let's take, uh, for example, an appliance manufacturer, well-known appliance manufacturer. All right, let's say like, uh, you know, what's one, Hire or uh, LG, Miele, whatever. They've got lots of products. And it's really, it's really tedious and expensive to have to explain to people what every product is. So if you just promote the brand, then people say, oh, that's a Miele, okay, I'll buy it. So it's a shortcut. But when you're faced with introducing something completely new, it's a challenge. Look, you know, uh, in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, new ideas, new ideas for the home, even up to the 2000s, new ideas for the home were coming out every year. Every year there would be people explaining like what an induction cooker is, a microwave, a front-loading uh, front washing machine. All these were innovations, right? So the advertising industry was pretty good at explaining new ideas. And some people said they're even too good. They create demand where there, there isn't, really isn't the need. But that capability has been forgotten. So one of the things I've learned on our journey is we've had to develop our, our own techniques for educating customers about what a new product is, something completely different. 
you know, a traditional air conditioner is great for cooling concrete. That's what they're designed for. Yeah. But, you know, we want to cool people. Yes. That's all that needs cooling. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so let's let's rewind a little bit in terms of the need. So there's not just a need from people for um, a better, more cost-effective air conditioning solution, especially when we're sleeping in those moments of discomfort in hot climates, but there's actually a planetary need for this. So can you speak to that a little bit about just how dire the um, past to present situation is for the world when it comes to sure. air conditioning? Okay. So one of the things that I've discovered quite recently is that there are very few people who really understand the predicament we're in. You know, there's this general idea, okay, we've got a problem, there's carbon pollution or whatever, people talk about that, but what does it really mean? And so I sat down with my people and said, we need to find a way of getting the message across. So I'm going to try this out on you and, and your audience. Because, you know, carbon dioxide, which is labeled as a pollutant, is actually essential for life, right? We need it because plants need it to grow and it keeps the planet warm enough to be habitable. So it's really a question of maintaining a balance. And in essence, by putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it's like putting on a second jumper when you don't need it, all right? We're upsetting the balance. We're making the earth warmer because less heat escapes into space. So if you've got less heat escaping, you're going to get hotter, and that's what's happening to the planet. Now, you know, the real issue is what will happen if we don't do something right away? And uncontrolled warming is, is the, the, the problem that we face. So basically, we've got, to, we've got to bring down our emissions of carbon dioxide so the planet can stabilize. We've got to get those emissions to zero. What do they come from? Well, the main source, particularly in Australia, is burning stuff to get energy. You know, whether it's fuel when we fly in a plane, drive a car, uh, our electricity. Um, and, you know, after all, in Australia, we produce fossil fuels, coal, natural gas. Uh, you know, we're one of the world's main suppliers. So for us, it's really hard <laughs> to face the fact that our main exports have to be phased out. That's why it's so difficult for the government to come to a decision on this. You know, it's simple self-interest. Um, so we've got to face this fact. But the thing is that we are the center of some of the world's most exciting innovations to deal with this issue. So in terms of air conditioning, the real issue is not so much air conditioning in Australia or America today. The real issue is that there's four or five billion people who are going to need air conditioning to survive on this planet as it heats up. And if we use today's technology, we're literally going to cook the planet as a result. We have to find a better way to do it. So let's understand. There's two factors. One is burning fuel to get electricity to run air conditioners. Factor number one. Factor number two is the gas that's inside the air conditioners. Uh, and that is hundreds or thousands of times more heat retaining in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. So one kilo of refrigerant released into the atmosphere, like a typical split system air conditioner, has one or two kilos of refrigerant. That can be equivalent to 1,000, 2,000, sometimes up to 10,000 times as much carbon dioxide. So that's the second source. Now, let's deal with those. 
Solar and renewable energy is becoming a lot cheaper and a lot more available, particularly during the daytime when the wind blows stronger, the sun shines. Okay, during the daytime, yeah, we can get lots of energy to run air conditioners as they are now. We can deal with that problem. Nighttime is a different story. For nighttime, we have to store the energy in batteries of some kind, and that introduces a cost factor. So let's go back a little bit. You asked, you know, one of the questions you asked me is, is, you know, when did I first realize the need for a green revolution in air conditioning? It's because I was in Pakistan, all right? In South Asia, there's 2 billion people who desperately need air conditioning to make life possible. You know, one of the reasons why people are poor in a country like India and Pakistan is because the heat is so debilitating. You can't work if you haven't had a, a good night's sleep. And for months of the year, people do not sleep because it's just too hot. No wonder they can't do much during the day, right? And you look at, look at a country like Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew said, air conditioning is what has made Singapore possible. So, oh, well, anyone, I remember when I was a smoker many moons ago, and I remember that Singapore layover uh, on the way to Europe yes. and going into the smoking garden or whatever yes, it was called. Yes, 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 yes. And just thinking, actually, I think I'll skip the cigarette. This is awful <laughs> because it was just so humid. Exactly. And, um, and back then, I've got to say, there wasn't much that would make me not want to smoke uh, if I had the opportunity. Right. So... Well, look, imagine. Um, so it, I, I remember it really vividly. Yeah. Thinking... Now imagine the temperature is 10 degrees warmer than in Singapore. Yeah. All right. Wow. So that's what people face every, through the months of summer in, in India and Pakistan, Bangladesh, and so on. So, and that's what I was facing when I was there. So I said, you know, here's, it wasn't so much an environmental issue as saying it's, it's, it's a human potential issue. Here's a way of keep giving people a good night's sleep at a price which they can afford. So that was the big attraction. When we started selling in Pakistan, the thing that sold our air conditioners was simply that it only cost five cents an hour to run. And people said, I can afford that. You know, to air condition one bedroom just at night in summer in India and Pakistan, it will cost you 250 US dollars a month which because you need insane. a generator. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. a bedroom, just at night. Mm. So we are bringing, you know, a good night's sleep into the range of affordability for most people in India and Pakistan. And in doing so, dramatically reduces the energy demand, which has huge environmental benefits, right? That's the, that's the link, right? So we reduce energy, we reduce the energy needs for people to be comfortable. So that was when I realized, okay, there's a huge, there's huge potential here. Now, there was a big competition a couple of years back called the Global Cooling Prize. And the whole idea was to invent new, you know, to stimulate the uh, invention of new technologies to solve this problem, because everybody realizes this is a big issue. Uh, but, you know, they came up with some great ideas, but they're not affordable. And, and so that's where we have an edge. We have a very simple technology, which is affordable by people, for people across the planet. So uh, dealing with the refrigerant, because our units are so small, uh, we use uh, in, our, in our new range, our new Coolsy range, coolsy.com, uh, we'll use a, a gas called propane, which you'll find in cans of shaving cream, hairspray, and so on and so forth. So in small quantities, it's very safe. But this gas can't be used for the big air conditioners, split air conditioners and building air conditioners. So 
you know, what do we do? Well, here, you know, politicians have got their act together. And uh, there's a very successful treaty, which was uh, called the Montreal Protocol, which was started in 1972 and then uh, amended in 1987 and then just recently in, in Kigali in 2015. And what this does is it regulates the emissions of refrigerant gases and other gases which harm originally harmed the ozone layer, but now uh, ozone are you know a, a greenhouse greenhouse gases, and refrigerants in air conditioners come into this. So the whole idea behind that has been to set up a mechanism whereby everybody across the planet will reduce the carbon intensity of refrigerant gases progressively over time. So we get better and better at it. So the idea is to phase out the refrigerants we use today and we gradually introduce new ones which have less and less effect on the, on, on the greenhouse effect, the global warming. But it's not enough by itself. No, I was going to say. We have to do other things as well. Yeah. So, you know, these are, these are some, of the, some of the ways we're trying to uh, solve these, these problems. You know, and, and, and engineers, once we get the, the money behind us, we get things moving. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is with how, how much less energy it uses uh, and how affordable it is to the average person. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, you know it, it's, it's, it's more affordable, it's cheaper, it's healthier. You know, I can tell, tell you a little bit about that. Yeah, can uh, we talk know, just, about how, why it's healthier? Yeah, sure. Mm. So I'm sure lots of people have heard of, you know, at some stage you've heard of the sick building syndrome. Oh, I have had had... sick building syndrome and I'm still recovering five years. Yeah. You know, so basically, why does that happen? It happens because air conditioning, traditional air conditioning, which, as I said, is optimized for cooling concrete. uh, Traditional air conditioning requires you keep the windows closed. So you live in a sealed environment and the air goes round and round and gets recirculated. So the nasty stuff which we shed in skin, skin particles and other stuff every day, you know, we try and vacuum it up, but it doesn't. It goes into the air. It, go, it, it gets coated on the inside of air conditioning ducts and so on and so forth. You know, and you get these biological contaminants, which progressively build up and, and cause, as we know, lots of problems. So that's one thing. Um, another, another thing that, that, uh, which has only recently started coming to light, if you give people the option of living in a air-conditioned environment and you give them access to the temperature knob summer winter you can say you can set whatever the temperature is you want guess what people do i don't know i always set they set they set the temperature at 23 and Mm -hmm. they leave it there summer and winter Uh uh-huh so people have this preference to live in a constant temperature environment you know if you live in a country like singapore you know, you move from one air-conditioned pod to another, to your car, to the office, and back to your car, to the shopping mall, and so on and so forth, right? So what uh, physiological research is showing is that your cardiovascular system loses condition progressively without you realizing it. You lose resilience, you lose your fitness level, you have to do more to maintain your fitness level because your body actually needs exposure to moderate heat and, and cold. Needs tension. To, to, it yeah. needs it needs that exposure to, to mm. remain healthy. So this is another factor. And it's really interesting, you know, people, because we've been selling our units in Singapore now, and we have really good relationships with wonderful people there. And some of them, people who've been using our air conditioners for now for, you know, two, three, four years are saying, you know, 
gradually I realized I need much less air conditioning. I can walk around in the heat outside without feeling hot. And, you know, because your air conditioner keeps me comfortable, but my legs and my arms are in the heat, hot zone, it doesn't make me uncomfortable at all. I feel cool because my face is cool, right? But my body is being conditioned to the heat. So, you know, I, I suddenly realized that when I live in a, work in an office with a normal air conditioner, I actually need the therm thermostat to be up high because it's too cold. And so there's this, uh, you, the, the thing is really the some way you can summarize it is that we, with, with our air conditioners, you don't lose your natural acclimatization to the heat, which you do if you live in a permanently air conditioned environment. Yeah, with that temperature controlled yeah. comfort so, in inverted yeah. commas. Yeah. So the physiologists have shown us, shown us, I went to a wonderful series of conference presentations on this. It takes about 10 days for your natural acclimatization to kick in if there's a sudden change, you know, if you fly to Singapore or something like that. So sure, for the first few days, you're going to be uncomfortable. But after 10 days, you get used to it. And sure, you need an air conditioner to, to, to you know, to work enjoyably, enjoyably and so on and so forth, just to take the edge off the heat. But you don't need to be at a temperature of 23 degrees. In fact, the trouble is, I'm sure lots of your audience would know if you go to a country like Singapore, you're going to have to take lots of jumpers and coats because you can end up in a building where it's freezing cold and very uncomfortable. So, so there's lots of other benefits, health benefits. And, and the, the other one, again, you know, I can't make claims because we don't do medical research. We don't have, we're a startup company. We can't do that. But lots of our customers have told us how much more comfortable they feel when they wake up in the morning. And it just doesn't seem to affect your, you know, your breathing system and so on. So some people who have breathing difficulties have said, look, we just feel so comfortable with this. We're not quite sure why. But I think it's the, it's, it's re, it is really interesting. You know, my wife told me this, first of all, she said, uh, and she was my, being, she's my biggest skeptic. You know, when I first showed her the bed tent idea in Pakistan, she wasn't there for that first demonstration, by the way, she was in Australia, uh, but she came subsequently. She looked at this tent and she said, you know, I'm claustrophobic. I'm <laughs> never going to get into that thing. It's just too small. <laughs> what? <laughs> I said, look, just try it one. Just try it for an hour. That's all I ask. Yeah. You know, uh, she said, Ugh. she said, okay, I'll try it for one night. That's it. But, you know, if I don't like it after a night, that's it. I'm never going to allow you to have it on our bed again. Mm -hmm. That was six or seven years ago. She has never slept without it in Pakistan since. Oh, she wow. Just said, she woke up. She said, I have never felt so good in my life after a night's sleep. Fabulous, because uh, a lot of people who sleep with air conditioning on do say that it dries their sinuses out, um, they find they snore more. So maybe it's that it doesn't necessarily dry. It the could air, be. Yeah, I think it, I think that's got something to do with it. I've but, gone you know, all said, house MD on it. I'm like, why is that? <laughs> <laughs> Let's yeah. do a differential. <laughs> so yeah, as I said, yeah. that's that's what our customers are telling uh, mm -hmm. telling us. My wife certainly tells me that. Uh, personally, I don't have have that problem to nearly the same extent, but she's asthmatic. So interesting. Uh, mm. um, now, you did mention sick building syndrome, and I know a lot of people in our audience are quite passionate about this topic because I've spoken about it since becoming very ill from a water damaged building. And then, of course, reacting in a top up sense to air conditionings that are contaminated in shopping centers and workplaces um, while I was still sick and trying to detox, you know, when the smallest thing still sets you off. Um, 
And I'm just curious to understand how the unit prevents something like mold from building up because, you know, with a split system, uh, if you let that just keep cooling indefinitely with no service, mold will eventually build up because of condensation. So does your unit avoid condensation altogether? Um, it, it works in an entirely different way. So we're not cooling the whole room. So you don't get the problem where you get cool walls, which then attract condensation because they're cool and you've got humid air uh, on the outside, particularly. Um, in fact, you know, one of the things that critics will point to with our machines is that we release the warm air into the room. So, you know, every air conditioner that's refrigeration air conditioner is going to do this. Uh, your fridge does it. Uh, one side gets cool. The other side has to take that heat and do something with it. Uh, and people think that with a portable air conditioner, the pipe will just send it outside. Well, that's not strictly the case either. Uh, our machines have such a small power demand that we can release that heat into the room. It just goes to the ceiling. And, and people who use it in areas like far north Queensland, where it's really humid, have told us that that's what keeps the mold away. It's just that little bit of extra warmth stops the mold forming. So they've told us this. We live in Perth, which is a very dry environment, so we can't see this. You can't see and, it for yourselves. No, I'll let you to. know after a February Sydney experience with the <laughs> Thank unit. You. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank I'm you. Happy to be a guinea pig. Um, yeah. it's, I'm fascinated by it, and I think. But look, it is. It's yeah. really important to control mold. Mm. I actually came across, uh, and this is this is sort of related. Um, I actually came across a fellow in Singapore who graduated in mathematics of all things mm -hmm. and stumbled onto a, a nanoparticle paint that will stop mold growing and will inhibit condensation. So wow. for people who are really facing this problem, you know, he's now marketing this, this special paint. It's white, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I think it only comes in it's a pretty, comes pretty safe any, color to go any with. shade, any shade, as long as it's white. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is we don't understand why. Mm. You know, I searched all the scientific literature I could find, and it's well known that uh, these titanium oxide nanoparticles have interesting properties, but nobody's done any research to find out why it inhibits uh, condensation. That's very uh, interesting. So, yeah, yeah because condens a lot of people think, oh, you know, I've got mold, there must be a massive leak, or I must have rising damp. And, yeah, that's sometimes the cause but a lot of people don't realize that simple humidity control and airflow um yeah. tend natural to be, ventilation exactly you know if it's yeah. building up especially behind a bedhead or behind a cupboard that's not necessarily a pipe at all in fact it's much more likely to be trapped moisture yeah. in the indoor yeah. environment exactly yeah i'm particularly mm. in sydney so you know household ventilation is really important and and here's here's another interesting thing particularly for your listeners so you know, one of the most effective ways you can keep your house cool in Australia is using what's called a whole house ventilation fan. So it's a big fan. It's about about a meter across. It runs slowly, so it's quiet, and it pulls air through the whole house at night when it's cool. And the result is your structure, the, the bricks and the concrete, cool down at night. And then you can live with open windows during the day, and your house is still nice and cool. Oh, what is this thing called? It's called a whole house ventilation fan. And so it not only deals with the mold issue because it keeps fresh air flowing, 
you know, and, and our machines work perfectly with this because, you know, our machines work with open windows, fresh air circulating. And that's another big health advantage, of course, because it reduces, reduces infection risk mm. and all that sort of thing. So, uh, and that's quite hard for some people to get their head around, interestingly. Mm. It's a mm. air conditioner, you run with the windows open. Say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and this technology, the whole house ventilation fans have been around since the 1940s. Mm. Uh, and they've faded from sight. But, you know, they're inexpensive, they, they cost very little to run, uh, and it's a really smart idea for Australia and easy to retrofit into most houses. Fantastic. And so do you see your coolsie becoming something that every bedroom in a hot climate has? Is that the vision? Oh, I'd love that. <laughs> well, obviously, anyone who invents <laughs> Look, something it's a, it's as an entrepreneur. Of, no, yeah. it's, a personal, it's a question of personal choice. You know, in Australia, it's a question of personal choice because we're an affluent country. You can decide for yourself. And and there's lots of reasons my wife wouldn't sleep with anything else. I, I don't think I would either. You know, once now I know it and all right, I invented it, but I still find it far more comfortable than traditional air conditioning. Uh, but it is a matter of personal choice. But, you know, for most people on this planet, it's a question of affordability. Yeah, and, and affordability you know, to run, as you've so rightly pointed yeah, out look, a couple of times. You know, yeah, the climate is warming. We're going to deal with much hotter conditions for many, many more people. You know, the whole of Southern Europe is going to face the kind of conditions that today you see in India and Pakistan. Mm. And we have to find a way to enable people to live and survive and lead healthy, productive lives in that environment. While without, not without, cooking the planet further. While not cooking the planet. So here's yeah. at least one solution. Mm -hmm. yeah. And do you see any viable way that this can become used in commercial buildings or is that just not possible at this point in time to even fathom how it might develop? Well, uh, I mean, you know, in Pakistan, we use it. Lots of people use it in commercial buildings. You have the okay. windows open. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. You know, there's the thing. Why is the, why is the window office so prestigious? You ever wondered that? It's not because of the view. Look, you know, most cities have got tall buildings. You don't have a view except the window across the street, right? It's because, particularly in America, where window air conditioners are still the de facto standard, that only the window office can be air conditioned. Right? <laughs> so this machine you can air condition any office whether it's in the heart of the building away from the windows whatever as long as you've got a bit of ceiling space for the warm air to diffuse away fine it'll work so yeah there's offices all around the world where this this can be used if you've got a really crowded office and you know if you go into offices in india pakistan where the people are literally crammed in you know almost they can't move sideways then then you know Traditional air conditioning is very cost effective and you can run it off solar panels during the day. You know, you can min virtually eliminate the climate impact if you go about it, designing it sensibly. That's that's a, a smarter solution. But if you've got, you know, large spaces like warehouses, factories and so on. And you want to make them comfortable to people. You don't want to air condition the whole space. That's ridiculous in terms of cost and let alone environmental impact. So, you know, having having cool air locally where it's needed, when it's needed, is a much smarter solution. So, you know, it's a question of using the right technology in the right way in the right place. I love it. Um, I, I think uh, what you've created is really exciting. I think uh, it's absolutely needed. And 
for especially for apartment dwellers, renters, people who maybe don't have, you know, passive houses or, you know, designs where they can um, do their temperature control and um, use air conditioners less in um, very technological uh, ways or ways that you would do if you owned a property. I, I just feel like this is something everyone can have access to, which is why I'm particularly excited about it. And then, of course, the climate impact uh, is just sensational. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, that's been the thing to me. It's grown and it's grown in significance and importance and more and more people are feeling in love with it, falling in love with it. Uh, so it's been a really exciting ride. You know, I had no idea when I started. As I said, it was initially just a technical curiosity. Mm. Um, and I had, a, I had a vision that people in India and Pakistan would buy it. And initially, I never thought people in Australia would buy it. Yeah. Oh, they will. Country. But, but yeah, we're finding that Australia is our biggest market and we have our most enthusiastic adopters here. So it's, it's all happening. I'm really excited about it. And it's been great to talk with you. Oh, I'm very excited, uh, James, for you. And I know everyone uh, who's been listening to the show this month is very curious, if not already jumping in and, and grabbing one for home to, to test it out on their main, main bedroom and see how it goes. <laughs> so thank you for being uh, the kind of brain that can bring us something like this. I really appreciate you joining me on the show. Pleasure. Just remember, it's coolsy.com. <laughs> <laughs> A born salesman. There you go. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Great to talk with you. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Low Tox Life uh, and, of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year which is about 29.30 US, about 27 euro and about 25 pounds, you get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lowtox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.